0: I'm Tinotenda Charles Rutanira, and this is the podcast On the Shoulders of Giants, where we get to chat with incredibly inspiring people who have broken the status quo or faced down adversity or taken the road less traveled and positively impacted the lives of other people. We get to hear their stories and gain knowledge and insights into how their professional and personal lives mix every day to create lessons and insights for others to follow because the only way to really grow is by building on previous discoveries. And only then can we truly see further by standing on the shoulders of giants. Statistics do not tell the story of migration. People do. Since its inception, this nation has been continually infused with the energy of newcomers, yet their migration to the shores of this greatest of countries and their subsequent assimilation has seldom been smooth. I often look at my own immigration story, which is a pretty cool story to tell, a combination of Agatha Christie thriller and Steven Spielberg sci fi adventure. But the challenges we face today as immigrants are not new, only our stories are. My guest today is Jean-Luc Dushime, an immigrant, a photographer, an artist, filmmaker, blogger, mentor, social activist, and personal friend. Jean-Luc, welcome, and thank you for taking the time to join us.
1: Uh, Thank you for having me, Kino.
0: So our lives first crossed paths about 11 years ago in 2005, riding the CCTA bus into work I saw you and your brother and immediately recognized you as African immigrants like myself. I introduced myself and basically one thing led to another and I now consider you guys family. I'm really thrilled to have you here and I'm looking forward to your story inspiring my listeners in the same way that it has inspired me. I want to start with you giving us a brief introduction about who you are and how you became who you are today. Great. Um,
1: so my name is uh, Jean-Louis Duchemin, as you said uh, said it earlier. Um, originally was born in Rwanda, just a small country in the center or the east center part of the African continent, roughly the same size as Vermont, uh, twenty-three thousand square kilometers. Um, high altitude country with volcanoes in the north. So the Temperature or the climate is very mild and temperate. It's a very beautiful place to be and then um, Had a normal childhood my parents were working parents both parents my mom and dad went to school Where my dad worked? Um, he was in. it was a pirate, pirate pirate in the military so um, basically it was a upper class you uh, upper class up the middle class family um, and then when I was 13 years old, the war started in Rwanda. Actually, the war started when I was 10 years old, and then it dragged until 1994 when it um, turned into a genocide, and um, that forces us to flee because the country was unstable. Uh, we end up in the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, and back then it was called a year where we spent um, two years before the Congolese war started, and then. And that started the journey, basically, that ended in Vermont in 2004. So, I mean, to talk about how I end up to be who I am, I think it's a summary or just multiple things that have influenced me, my desire to become a journalist, so my desire to uh, learn the skill to communicate what I've been through, and then also... The violence or what I have it I was exposed to in terms of like violence and war um, made me compassionate, and then also allowed uh, gave me the opportunity to explore my spiritual side. So and all of that has accumulated um, into make me who I am. But I would say that I'm 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 in a journey, so I keep I'm growing, and then my objectives and my goal and my passion are evolving as well. So I'm. I'm a photographer and storyteller, and I deeply enjoy working with the youth mentoring, uh, which I've been doing for years in Vermont. And now um, I am just on the path of figuring out how to blend all these skills and then make them useful and then have an impact on the community I'm living in now and also maybe back home at some point on the African continent.
0: That's pretty cool um so I'm sure this uh, raises a lot of questions uh, for the audience and uh, it does as it does for me what was your childhood like and what, what sort of uh, influences uh were in your childhood?
1: Well I mean I grew up in Kigali, which is the capital um, of um, Rwanda and um, growing up uh, i mean I grew up with so i have i had two two sisters and one brother so Basically, I'm the middle child. So, growing up, I ran around uh, chasing my older brother who had bodies. So, as a kid, I always want to be part of the crew. Um, So, I was the kid uh, trying to fit in my brother, but I I was kind of like uh, a daredevil. So, I was not scared of breaking a bone or trying new experiences. I think in a young age, I was already a curious uh, kid. Uh, curious mind. I had a really a curious mind. I would push the boundaries. I would get into fights, or I would climb a tree and jump with uh, an umbrella to see if I can be like, you know, <laughs> to be like <laughs> a day Mary Poppins, right? <laughs> I know, like skydive or something, you know. Um, so basically, um, I was one of those kids, high energy. Troublesome, but in a good way. You know, I feel like I have that has carried me in my adulthood, you know, because I never said it for less. I'm
0: always pushing. Um, so, I mean, it was great. Um, so, so have, my dad was, do you feel like, go um, ahead. Do you feel like you're, you know, that sort of spirit uh, of being a daredevil, of challenging the status quo, and, you know, always wanting to push the boundaries? Um, how has that been part of uh, developing who you have become today? You know, I feel
1: like, I mean, looking back, i I've realized I was not going to settle to be conventional, you know? I was not, I, I wanted to go to art school since I was a kid. Um, I grew up drawing. I would draw helicopters. Uh, I draw from my memory. Um, I used to draw on the frame of my bed, and I would draw on the wall in my bedroom, and my mom didn't like it at all. So when it came time to, choose what to do in secondary school which is like six years when you finish your sixth year like yes at primary school um you go to to secondary school but usually go up uh like a boarding school I want to go to art school which we had one art school in the north part of the country but my mom didn't want me to because she thought being an artist was just making those letters for their little shops in the neighborhood that I would never make a living or Maybe it was shameful for her family coming from, like, upper middle class family for me to do that kind of job. So she sta- she sent me to study agriculture instead, uh, which I didn't really like at all. I didn't see myself as a city boy to become a farmer uh, or someone who helps farmer uh, take care of the land and, and harvest, which is something I feel like now I'm older, I, I, I re- I'm interested in. But back then I was like, nah, no way, I'm going to become a, the guy who wear gumboots and uh, walk around all day, night in the rain, talk to farmers. So I think my desire to become an artist and my desire to explore kind of like, helped me go through tough times, things I went through and then also as an adult, I refused to just settle for a conventional career, get a job and work nine to five. But I knew it was going to be hard, hard, but at the same time, I knew there was no other way for me to be happy and feel fulfilled unless I really follow my heart.
0: Wow. Yeah, that's that's very insightful. Um, and I can sort of see how that trajectory has uh, taken you to be who you are. Now, um, so... In about 1990, 1991, uh, the, the war started in Rwanda and then culminated in the genocide in '94. Um, what do you remember about the war and uh, the, the, the beginning parts of the war prior to the genocide? Um, in a
1: way, I mean, looking back at it, I think I was uh, sheltered. I was not very much aware of the political situation of the country. I mean, I was 10 years old, so basically I was transitioning from, like, primary school going to secondary school, which was, like, an, a, a time for, like, I was a teenager, basically. And, and I was mostly preoccupied by music and cinema. than I was preoccupied by politics, you know. Um, so when the war started, definitely that changed the, the, the dynamics. I mean the city. Um, I mean they, they were more like military presence, but also that's uh, when I was basically finishing elementary school, so I didn't see much. But I, 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 um, it got worse progressively, you know, from 90s between 90, 1990 to 1992, 1993 was it started getting worse because then I was I was back in boarding school. So every time I come home for vacation, the city will be like. Yes, you know the situation in the city would be like was not great to a point where my mom had to basically block all the windows of the house because people were throwing grenades in people's homes and stuff at night. So basically, we like living in the bunker, and that was not a great experience as a, as a young boy.
0: And uh, so then the gen- genocide started. Um, where were you, and uh, how did that unfold in your life?
1: I wasn't in boarding school, so my school started a little bit late than everybody else. Um, so we were supposed to catch up, and that was the last semester before we basically start, like, catching up with everybody else so we can start, like, um, uh, on the same time. So we were supposed to go home on Friday, and the the, pres- the former president's plane was playing shot on Wednesday. So in the morning, we woke up the following day, and there was classical music on the radio, and... And then suddenly all these messages, right, they're making announcements saying the president, the, the present plan planner was shared, so um, we're be about to stay in. Nobody moves. So basically we're stuck at school for two months. No parents. Like, I mean, I was, like, I was 13 years old. So imagine, like, 13 years old, 14 years old, maybe even younger, 12 years old, all of them stuck for more like 500 students, all stuck in this school. No parents. No real information. So it just... Rumors and 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 also, I mean, it, all these issues. I mean, you think about it. Like, depending what side you were on, which side you were like standing on, probably was most traumatic. And then also, I mean, as a young person, I don't think any of us were aware. Of, some of us, most of us, were not aware of what's going on. So it was a very scary experience. Um, fortunately, in my in my what I'm aware of, I think until I left the school, none of uh, none of my student, my classmates were um, uh, were killed. So,
0: I'm assuming at some point you were let out of school.
1: Uh, yeah, my my mom sent a message at the school that she was able to get out of uh, the capital, and that she was a host, she back to the to where she grew up uh, in the south. So I catch, I did catch a ride with a truck that I was heading to where she was. That's really what I saw the the, the the scale of the killings because then I was sitting in the pickup truck for over two hundred miles and then seeing like checkpoints and I like, I mean you could see uh, corpses on the side of the road and stuff, you know, but when you're thirteen years old is something that doesn't really leave you uh, and it stays with you forever. Especially the snow.
0: Right, right. Yeah, I- And at some point, I want to sort of touch on that. But um, you guys left Rwanda and uh, ended up in uh, DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo, in a refugee camp. What was it like there? You know, was it freedom or was it more of out of the frying pan into the fire, uh, as I say?
1: I I mean, for us, it was different because my mom, we used to go to DRC before the war. So we had friends there. Um, So friends did take us in. Um, so we stayed with them for about a year while a lot of people were sleeping on the side of the road and people started moving to the camps. So we, uh, when we got to Bukavu, we really didn't leave into a refugee camp for six except my mom who was working. She was teaching in a refugee camp. So sometimes I go stay with her and it was rough. I mean, um, you have to wait for the food and you have to line up like everybody else and get water and stuff like that Uh, and it was not safe but i mean life life for us i mean continued because um we had my mom had friends that uh took care of us but a lot of people a lot of people died from um cholera and uh and just other diseases like malaria because they didn't have uh hospitals or or people to help them
0: you guys had worked for several weeks to get to to safety right? um i
1: mean uh back then uh, back from rwanda to Bukavu, we didn't really work walk because we had uh pe- we had friends that had cars so that gave us a ride um but uh we started walking when the congolese war started that's when things like crazy
0: as a child, you know um, given all this uh, chaos that's happening around you you know and uh, the loss of relationships, possessions, freedoms, etc, you know how do you process all of that and um, and do you live sort of acknowledging during that time were you acknowledging the circumstances around you, or were you just sort of living day by day trying to survive
1: uh you know i I think when you are in in that type of situation, you don't really think about bigger picture. Uh, I think uh, you, you switch in survival mode, and um, all you think about is now, uh, the next 24 hours. And, I mean, because I was young, so I was looking at my mom, right? Um, and, and, and she was making decisions. She was saying, move here, move there, and calling people and stuff like that. So, in a way, I feel like I was lucky to be able to, um, to have a... Uh, a capable parent who who stood in the gap and uh, and provided and shielded us and pro- get advice as uh, counsel us and then show us the right way. But it gets difficult as you grow up because that's when actually you start seeing the scale and then seeing how how it could have been even worse. You know, I mean, just a, a simple mistake could have killed you, right? And then especially, I mean, it gets even worse as you start digging and then start to understand and you read books and then you start going back and then you try to understand and then you start seeing all these valuables, all these things that you couldn't, I mean, there's no way I can explain how to survive, you know, because there's so much that was going against you, you know. Mm. And, and then you find yourself, um, like you're still standing while the, a lot of thousands and thousands of people died. So it's not that simple. Uh, and I, I don't think I will ever find a way to deal with it. Um, because probably when I have kids then it's gonna even like become even more real because then I'm gonna have the responsibility of the life, right? And then, then I'm gonna start like trying to figure out if I had a baby in that situation what I could have done. So I feel like it doesn't end, you know, it's just this journey of you know, of me. Stepping in other people's shoes, probably I'm gonna step in my mother's my shoes, and then trying to figure out what she had to do to be able to get out of there, you know. So right, it
0: never end. Hmm. And I mean, I'm assuming you know you you must have lost friends and people that were pretty close to you during that time.
1: Yes. Um. Yeah. We lost um, um couple um family so members on my mom's side, and definitely a lot of close friends. A lot of cr- close friend that died in Rwanda during the genocide that died in the Congo. A lot of them. I mean, I think with the distance, you know, you kind of learn how to forget, uh, but at the same time, that disconnect, it it changes you because you learn to, to shut down some part of your brain or shut down some part of your emotions so you don't miss people. You know, and it becomes difficult to operate in a world where people expect you to be normal, you know, to cry or to, to say I miss you or something. But it's really hard. You know, I mean, it's a word I use. I miss someone. But the truth is, it's like, you know, I can, get, I can move on with life without missing anyone because that's
0: how I, I, I survive. Right. Right. So, you know, one of the people that you lost was your dad. And so when presented with these conditions, you know, of adversity, loss, grief, depression, you know, you hear a lot um, maybe from the military guys who have been in Afghan and and, uh, Iraq about post-traumatic stress and all of that stuff. Do you think um, the fact that you were young has enabled you to process this or, you know, and what do you think determines or determined your recovery at such a young age? Do you think if you are older, uh, you might have been uh, in a worse position than you are?
1: I, I mean, I feel like, I mean, my dad passed away when I was young, so that was before before the before the war. And I don't think uh, you really miss someone that passed away when we're young until you're old. And I feel like now, now is the time. I actually, I'm start like touching those emotions. And in terms of the war, it's it's. I mean, some people find a way to cope with it by shutting shutting off and then moving on, jumping, throwing themselves into life, making life, getting married, have kids, getting a career. But for me, I chose to look back because I figured there's no way I'm going to move on with this weight unless I should look back and then try to make sense of what happened. Uh, and that was my way of dealing with it. Um, but it's, uh, it's a very risky way because I don't know what I'm getting into, and I don't know how far I can push it. You know, how far I can walk the same path I walked when I was a kid. And um, and, and my capacity to control my own emotions, you know. I mean, there are strong emotions. Like fe- like fear is one of the most paralyzing emotions, you know, that someone one can experience. And then it's something that really can like, damage you forever. And the guilt of, like survival guilt, and just keep thinking about why you survived and then why not. Someone else, and that's something that's hard to deal with. Uh, And of course, PTSD um, in terms of like war, weapons, guns, and violence. um, When you're around people that celebrate weapons, that's something that you should have. So I mean, it's, it's so much to deal with. But uh, at the same time, it's, I see the positive side of it. I mean, there is like so many, so much negativity around this, but also there's the positive side of it because it has taught me to appreciate life. You know, like I say, that the dead um, have taught me how to live. Uh, it's a reminder that uh, the fact that I'm alive, uh, I have the responsibility to cherish the life I have and then really live it fully, um, right. because I could be the one who died. You know but that also comes with a lot of responsibility that can crush your soul so it's a kind of like a dance you know to dance to dance i use it when i'm discouraged and i feel down I, rem- I remind myself and then i'm i'm back up you know and then i'm i keep fighting so
0: right never ends i'm going to fast forward a little bit uh and then maybe we can backtrack i know a couple of years ago you then decided to go back to Rwanda after you've been in the U.S. and uh, it was now peaceful in Rwanda. Um, How was that going back for the first time and uh, literally facing your your demons?
1: You know, I mean, I figured there was no way I was going to move forward as an adult uh, unless I really go back to where everything started. And I think that's something a lot of people don't do. Um, Usually the natural thing to do is to run away as much as possible, and as far as, as possible. Uh, but for me, I, fi- I, I realized it's like, I have lived the world through uh, the adults that are surrounding me, eyes, you know, and perspectives. And I figured that there's no way I'm gonna be able to move forward and have an objective view or in my country, on my path, unless I really start creating like, informed like, decisions, informed opinions, so I decided to go back. Because what happened is, in terms of trauma, I feel like for me, when a family or a group of people experience some traumatic events, they are bound forever. So they share, they communicate the fears, they, they, they fear of each other, you know, the courage, the fears, the ignorance, and all this stuff, right? So I figure for me, there's no way I'm going to move forward unless I break the circle. So that's why I decided to go back, but it took me a lot of years because... I realized it's like when you, the the, the part of the identity, the the part of your identity that is most attacked is the one who becomes the the, the most uh, dominant. So for me, being attacked as a refugee, uh, um, as a Hutu, whatever it was, became such a big part of my life. I felt like I I couldn't go back. But it took me to take a trip to India then to realize I was being a Rwanda being a refugee, being Hutu, being whatever it was, was the last thing on the list. I was an American, I was a black I was a photographer, I was an adventurer. I was this dude that was just trying to explore the world and meet people, right? And suddenly I rediscovered all this part of my identity, the kind of like that was swallowed by all this this trauma. So when I came back, I was like, you know, I'm ready. So I happened to plane a couple weeks later and then I was in Rwanda, you know. I mean, when I landed in Kigali, my heart almost stopped, you know. All these voices and all this stuff I absorbed as a kid came back, you know. All these fears came back. But um, I was reading this book called Surviving Survival, and this book was talking about how you need to override bad experiences with good ones. So I, I I learned to be patient with myself and listen to myself. And, um, and I spent three and a half weeks there. I got to see my grandmother. I went to church, The Catholic service which I did growing up, just trying to revive good memories. Um, I walked, and the last day I walked in my old neighborhood and trying to find the house where I lived, and then we all my steps, That's my mom and I went to the market saying hi to people. I was sweating like crazy. My brain was like on fire, right? But it was such a powerful experience because I, um, for a long time I struggled to see myself as an adult, and then... Because I feel like I was stuck on that, like that, 13 years old. I feel like time has stopped when, when the the the, the, the war started and the, the the genocide and all the stuff that happened afterwards. But on the last day when I was walking, uh, in the Capitol, I caught a glimpse of myself in this window, which was like a tinted window. I, I catch a glimpse of myself, and for the first time, I saw myself as an adult. You know, even when I came back home, my uh, fiancé back then, she looked at me, she's like, you know, you look different. Uh, and then, yes, I felt different. I felt like I uh, I finally caught up with myself.
0: Right. Wow. That's pretty cool because um, when, when you talk about the fact that you went back when many people would have run away, you know, and um, I read about a book uh, that talked a bit about what's called post-traumatic growth, and um, mm-hmm. th- which is different from post-traumatic stress. And uh, basically, that's so, sort of the uh, what sort of separates you from others that have gone through a similar experience but don't grow from that experience. And, I mean, you're one of uh, only a handful of people that I know personally. In fact, I can count them on one hand uh, that have, uh, for instance, presented at a TED Talk. You know, uh, how cool is that, you know, when you can look back and think, this events that, that happened in your life, you are now able yeah. to sort of go through it, live through it, and relive through it, and then be able to have it influence your life in a positive way to such an extent that you're also doing things like presenting at uh, at a TED Talk about it. You know, uh, I, I really sort of admire that and think that it's something that a lot of people can probably take away as, as something that is a great thing to, to behold.
1: So many, there's so many, oh, so many levels, right? We get hurt and so many levels we get traumatized by something and it doesn't have to be a war or, or a genocide or anything. There's so many things we can be traumatized through a relationship, a loss of a job or something like that, right? And, right. And sometimes we, there's no time to mourn. We move on with life because somehow we have to keep us our, ourselves strong and then keep the stay functional in the society, especially like in the Western world, where there's no time to mourn and there's no, you don't get a lot of community support. So for me, that's I've been on this journey of like, like listening to myself and giving myself giving myself the space to do that, you know. And I, I know it's it's a journey. I mean, it's just the beginning, and then it may never end. Uh, because a lot of people ask me, have you find find closure? You know, and then and then. I go like there's no such thing as closure, you know. You just learn to deal with the past, you know, Uh, because I learned that even the past changes, you know, as time goes by uh, because you may gain more clarity or you may gain more confusion. Um, So I've been learning to to stay open because I know my life is changing so fast. As I grow, I grow up as, as as a man, as a father, as spiritually, and then also as I gain more knowledge, you know, my past is going to change, positively or negatively, you know. But I, I I have to be open to those changes, otherwise,
0: uh, I'm just going to get
1: heartbroken again.
0: Wow, that's a very powerful insight. Uh, I love the fact that uh, when you say, you know, the past changes, you know, depending on perspective and your influences and the way that you have, you, you view things and you've grown. So really cool stuff. Um, just kind of going back uh, when you guys uh, were in DRC and how, how were you selected to come to the US?
1: Um, so, I mean, we had after walking through the jungle for six months, we ended up in the, Democrat, uh, in the Republic of Congo. It's called the, the French Congo. It's a small mm-hmm. Congo. Right. Uh, so that's where we lived for seven years, and then there, my mom applied for asylum through the High Commission of Refugee. but it took a long, it took like four years. And then after four years, our case was accepted, but we, they said, okay, you guys are moving to America, but we didn't believe it. We are like, uh, sure, yeah, we, we definitely believe when, when we sit on that plane, and then time came, we sat on the plane, and they locked the, do- the, the, the the door. And then I was like, yes, it's happening, right? But it, it was like my mom's strength to really carry us because, I mean, for for four years, she had to go through so much. And, then, and she had to keep faith that things are going to go through, even though despite things didn't seem that they were going to go through. But they did, you know. But I think one thing she did was to encourage us to keep Getting an education, even in Congo Brazzaville, we went back to high school. We went to the university. She was selling like little things on the market, trying to pay the rent and feed us. She was like, you know what? That's the best thing I can give you: just an education. And when we moved to the U.S., I feel like we were ready to continue our education. So we didn't really lose. We lost much, a lot of time in the war, but at the same time, we were kind of ready to just jump in. Uh, jump in. Uh, and just continue with the education or move to the US. So, and that's something I'm really grateful for, uh, for my mom for um, stand, again standing the gap and uh, pushing us to just keep our head down and study.
2: Yeah. Uh,
0: very powerful woman. Uh, I love her to bits. Uh, she's somebody that I know through you guys and, you know, just uh, from chatting with her and getting to know her, clearly you can tell the sort of uh, woman she is. And it's, no. it's sort of reflected in your life. Uh, what has been sort of like you've, you've uh, tried to show the impact on the role of women through your work as a photographer and as an artist?
1: This is something I've been trying to work on for a while, and I feel like it changes as, like I, I say earlier, as I grow as an artist and as I grow as a person. Like my perspective on my past changes because I get more insight. But I'm very fascinated by the role of women in in, in fighting for life in times of destruction, you know, and that that's something that people don't talk about enough in times of war because the majority of destruction happens in the hands of men but the women usually they're not sitting back and just looking the women are trying to rebuild what the men are destroying so or or to save what left what's left of the the destruction and that that has been the example of my mom not only in saving our lives but also teaching us to love and to forgive and to keep reaching out on the other side you know my mom never instigate hatred in our, in our heart. And that's something I'm, I'm really, really grateful for. She has always been uh, recon- reconciliatory and always been like the person who says, you know, she has friends all over the spectrum and she never stops reaching out to people. So I think that's one thing I'm, I'm, I'm exploring in my, in my work and I want to do more of that um down the road because it happens everywhere. It happens in the United States, happens on the African continent, in Asia. She has taught me the power of a woman and to respect women. Um and then and, and, and I think that's what led me to be with the woman I am today because she's similar in that way. So I am grateful um to have a mother who who stood in the gap. So when people say, you know, single mother cannot raise uh, sons or strong men, I say that's all
0: lies. Right. They can. Yeah. And what was the, when you came uh, to the U S you know, what was more traumatic, the relocation and the simulation or, you know, what had happened previously? Because I know personally for me, getting acclimatized into American culture and society it's, it's incredibly different from the way my life was in, in Zimbabwe and yeah. um, as I'm sure yeah. your life was in Rwanda.
1: Yeah, I, I think that the, the most traumatic experience uh, moving to the U.S. is realizing that, you know, there's no need to survive. It's a big shift, right? I mean the first the first year you're surviving because I mean there's the winter you you're struggling with your your body is really in pain because it's cold and then you, you just not you, you your brain is rejecting completely the the, the weather you know <laughs> so no no matter how many clothes you put on you stay cold because it's all mental right you can look like Michelin tire but you still cold <laughs> so so. Like, that's, I mean, physically you are struggling uh, with that, By that uh, finally you are in a place where, like, coming from Congo, Brazil, the mosquitoes, here, the non-mosquitoes, probably you can sleep in the living room, and, you know, of course there, there, there is access to resources, you know, you can move around and stuff. But and then it becomes difficult that you, I mean, when you move, you don't speak English at all, so we have to go through translators and we are so grateful that we had uh, families, two families that became our friends. At the beginning they were volunteers. They took us around, they showed us stuff, they taught us how to use the bank system, transportation and all this stuff. But then you start setting in, right, Uh, you start getting used to living here and then suddenly it just hits you that there's no need to survive anymore which means that there's no need to stick to each other as a family, you know, as you survive together, you know, and you need you de- you needed each other. Uh, and suddenly you don't need to do that anymore, you know, and people start having dreams and, and people start having passions and people start having incomes and then the means to be able to be mobile and move around and, and then start, people start falling in love and then suddenly people start drifting. But the problem is, when people have survived together, even a small drift is a giant crack in the relationship. Mm. And, and I think that's what, I mean, that comes with trauma, and that's what soldiers experience when they come from war, because they cannot, they will never have the same relationship with their wives as the relationship they have with the, the, fellow, the fellow soldiers. Because there's something that happens in the time of war when it's a life-and-death situation, like people next to each other they kind of like make a commitment to each other that they will stick to each other, you know, no matter what. And right. that usually doesn't happen in a relationship. It's just like a, it's another level of, in terms of, it's another level of commitment that you don't usually get in relationships. So and that happened, you know, when families move, especially coming from a, a place of hardship, a place of war, and people said, so it, it's you have to readjust. And then we define the relationships, and that's the hardest part. If you're not smart enough, if you're not aware, you definitely lose it. Uh, and a lot of people have, a lot of families have tear apart, people divorced, kids moved on, moved away, and parents died, broken and sore. You know, and that's the hardest part. And then you start wondering, is it what is it again in the United States worth what, more than what I'm losing? So it becomes, it becomes because people ask, me, people ask me all the time, oh, are you happy you moved to the United States? Are you happy you have access to all this stuff, you know? In comparison to what you lose, um, I don't think so. I think it's a matter of perspective, right? In comparison, I don't think so, but I'm lucky that I'm aware of this stuff, so I got to, I get to work on it, and I get to be mindful, and, and engage and be there. Otherwise it's like so easy. I mean i see my friends, I see people that I've worked with drifting and now they are like ghosts, you know? So it's a very tricky thing and that's the transition that's the hardest and and people don't talk about it enough. And I think I mean I mean I think that happens on so many levels. Something that you have to watch for.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I, I I see that a lot and uh feel that a lot as well, especially when it comes to family and the nucleus of the family, um you know, which isn't necessarily as revered here in the US as it is maybe yeah. in in yeah. African culture where you know, yeah. you you have to stick together no matter what you're doing things for each other at any cost, you know, and yeah. you're sort of sacrificing for each other whereas um it feels a lot here that it's a very much you know a one man for himself, God for us all type of uh, environment. I got to make sure that I am good before I start trying to help everybody else out. Does sort of um, leave you a little um, sort of your your compass at least uh, speaking of my from myself and a lot of uh, immigrants that I have interacted mm-hmm. with. You know that that social compass which tells you you know that you know family first, family first, kind of goes a little bit off. Uh, and leaves you sort of wondering that yeah. loss, you know, it's, it's pretty huge.
1: It is huge. And then really I think for people that are wired to live in the community, it's really hard to survive outside of it. And, and, and it's something that I think we don't talk about enough. And I've been asking myself, you know, there's nothing wrong with me to desire to be part, to be with my family, right? And I feel like there's so much pressure in the individualistic society, to be to be yourself and to sell for your yourself, not to, to share, not to contribute, not to do anything, because that's how uh, like finances are thought, and then everything is thought, right? You you look after yourself, but on your on your flip side, you kind of people kind of shame call losers if they they want to be part of the community. So it's not it's not easy it's not easy, especially for the youngsters. For the second generation, they really struggle with that because they go to school and their classmates and then everybody else trying to push them to or ask them questions, what do spend so much time with the family? So it's something that's not talked about enough and uh, but it's a beautiful thing. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being individualistic but also be part of the community and just finding that balance.
0: Right. Right. Yeah, definitely to be part of the community, and uh, which is why I, I applaud a lot of these organizations that are trying to build these local communities, uh, especially for immigrants, because it is so such an important part of our culture, which which doesn't always exist here. Because sometimes I don't even yeah. know who my neighbors are, you know, or I don't really care who they are. And when I get home, I yeah. just want to get home, close the doors and do my own thing. Uh, whereas it's very different. Yeah. I want to wrap up here, and uh, I'm going to ask you the question that I ask all my guests. In closing, if you could travel back in time to a younger version of you, uh, let's say a teenage version of you, what words of wisdom would you say to yourself?
1: Um, I would say... um, I would say not to give up on my passion, um, to love uh, my family as much as I can, and um, never stop, never stop pushing myself to understand what's going on in terms of like like all these moving parts, like my political life, my spiritual life, my financial life, my relationships, my love life, and all this stuff. I feel like never stop pushing and educating myself in these, all these areas because I feel like the only way for me to, to be who I am is to keep educating myself. And that way I can, I can make informed,
0: informed decisions and then actions. That's awesome. I love that. Um, Passion for what you love, love your family, and always be looking for wisdom. Those are three wonderful, um, inspirational pieces of advice that any listeners who might be listening today uh, could definitely take home from us. So, yeah, John Luke, thank you so much for uh, being a guest on my show. It's it's always a pleasure to talk to you and get your (laughs) insights. If if people want to get in touch with you, Do you want to give out uh, any ways uh, of getting in touch with you, either email or website? Uh, You can reach me
1: uh, via my email, which is uh, dushime, D-U-S-H-I-M-E, J-L, at uh, gmail.com. And my website is my last name, first name, dushimejeanluc.com. Sweet. Awesome. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, and uh, you're an inspiration to me. Uh, for what you do and i'm looking forward to see you next time on the east coast on the west coast
0: that uh, will wrap up the show next time on the podcast on the shoulders of giants ted adler entrepreneur and president of Union Street Media, joins me to talk about what it takes to start and run a business.
2: Um, You know, and so I've never felt like I woke up in the morning with some like entrepreneurial genius that, you know, saw a path and, you know, went on to create a company. Like a lot of it was hard work and a lot of it was timing and absolutely there's a huge component of luck. And I think that that goes back to the saying that I said a couple minutes ago of like of making serendipity happen and I think that that is a big part of what entrepreneurship is is that um, you have to create the chance and create the opportunity for something to happen like that will be that will make you successful Um, and that involves like a willingness to take risks it revolves a willingness to be creative you know it involves putting certain things in your life first over others and uh, you know for me like You know, I was not going to accept the paradigm that, um, you know, the only way that you could have a compelling and interesting career in Vermont was to, like, go to medical school and become a doctor or to um, get a Ph.D. and become a professor,